This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on with the show. Warning. This episode contains graphic and violent details, as well as topics involving suicide that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Let's talk about those teenage years. I don't know why those years from 13 to 19 are kind of a blur to me. I remember being kind of withdrawn. Maybe I was kind of awkward, maybe kind of shy. I struggled to fit in in high school. My birthday's in December, so I was basically younger than everyone in my class. I didn't have any brothers or sisters to lean on or learn from. I went to a really diverse high school, but being of mixed ethnicities, which wasn't really common at that time, at least it didn't seem like it because I didn't know of any other kids who had one white parent and one Asian parent, there was really no niche for me. So clicking up with a group with ethnic commonalities just wasn't going to happen. If anything, it made me even more withdrawn. I kept to myself a lot. I got my driver's license pretty much the second I could. My parents gave me a car and I quickly looked for a part-time job. By the time I was in my junior and senior year, I made sure I worked my school schedule out so that I could be done with classes by fifth period and I would be able to leave campus for the day and not have to sit through the torture of lunch. I would get in my car and go do my own thing for the remainder of the day, either work or go home. I had a couple of close friends, and sometimes I'd go to their house and hang out. I was pretty straight edge, if you're wondering. I didn't drink or do drugs, and I didn't have a boyfriend or anything. It really wasn't my thing, I guess. Now that I think about it, maybe that's why I wasn't fitting in with the other Gen Xers. No drugs, no drinking, no guys. Who knows? But once I started college and got a job, the world kind of started opening up for me. I started making more and different friends. I moved out. I had a variety of roommates and I just kind of lollygagged through the 90s, sort of carefree, directionless, yet pretty content. Then life happened. In other words, I became pregnant with my now 18-year-old. And her teen experience could not be more polar opposite than mine. I blamed isolation, being an only child, and racial identity issues as excuses for a less than pleasant teenage experience. But not her. She turned those into her strengths. All of these things, the same things I found to be hindrances, she viewed as advantages. 
Granted, times are different 25 years after the fact, but it was still phenomenal to watch her breeze through school, making it as fun as possible for herself. Socially, she was outgoing. She has so many friends, friends for days. Everywhere we go, she runs into at least two or three friends, everywhere. She played sports from the time she was 10, and that helped build a great deal of confidence in her. For me, I think I'd rather die than play a sport. PE was a nightmare. She couldn't care less about driving or trying to find herself or trying to get on with her life. She and I have a really close relationship. She's very attached to me and to our home. And for me, that might have been part of it as I was kind of distant and detached from my parents, particularly my mom. If you follow me on social media, you've seen me post about my daughter just getting her learning permit. As I do think she's realizing that she can't go on forever bumming rides off of me or her friends. I've enjoyed watching her enjoy her teenage years so much that it makes me have no regrets that my teen years were so crappy. The one thing we did have in common is that neither of us were really all that boy crazy. I haven't talked to her about it all that much, but for me, I just don't think I really cared and she seems to be the same way, I don't know. She's had friends that have had so much boyfriend drama, the fighting, the crying, the tears, and a lot of it plays out on social media nowadays and it becomes very embarrassing. She probably wants no part of that and I can see why. I bring this up because the story I'm going to tell you today, we get a glimpse into a young teenage relationship. One that would be so intense from the very beginning that it was destined to have no way to go but bad. Bad, bad, bad. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of star-crossed lovers. Before I even get into this story, I think we should talk about the term star-crossed lovers to make sure we're all on the same page. I would use the example of Romeo and Juliet as somewhat of a cliche-ish example, but that is the archetype I'm going for as we delve into this tale. As Shakespeare told it, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth their death bury their parents' strife. So these two kids, whose parents don't get along, decide that they'll show them by ending it all. I don't find it particularly romantic, but you kind of get the gist of what I mean by star-crossed lovers. You've got two people who are in love, often teenagers, who are doomed to be apart no matter how much they struggle to be together. What's keeping them apart might be fate or feuding families or even something as simple as distance but there is something that will always be in their way forever. And so they come to the conclusion that the only way they can be together is in death. The term might sometimes be misconstrued as meaning lovers who are meant to be together, when it actually means the opposite. Literally, the stars, meaning the heavens or destiny, are completely against them, or cross them out. The stars that rule over everything, 
including the impossibility of their love, leading to the inevitability of these two lovers ever crossing paths. The term also further implies that these lovers have embarked upon a relationship without any forethought, not knowing each other very well or not rationally thinking about it because they were being controlled by the forces of fate, the forces of the stars. And this, my listeners, is the theme of today's story, the story of a forbidden kind of love, the kind of love teenagers really know nothing about, but they think they do. Joanne Witt was a 47-year-old single mother, raising her daughter by herself in El Dorado Hills, California, an unincorporated, census-designated place located in El Dorado County, 22 miles or 35 kilometers east of the state capital of Sacramento. It is generally a rural area. However, the county is a part of the Sacramento metropolitan area because it is socially and economically integrated with the much larger Sacramento County. El Dorado Hills has been nationally recognized for its high median household income. So it can be inferred that Joanne was doing pretty well for herself and her daughter on her own. She was an engineer for the county, a job she enjoyed very much and was very much dedicated to, which afforded her the ability to live in the affluent area. So in 2009, when Joanne's retired parents, Norb and Judy, returned from a two-month-long trip across the United States in their RV, they received a phone call from Joanne's place of employment that she hadn't shown up for work, and they wanted to know if they knew where she was. They told Joanne's parents that she hadn't shown up for work that past Friday, June 12th, and then again on Monday, June 15th. Her co-workers quickly grew concerned because she never missed work without calling. Never. And it struck her parents as unusual for Joanne as well. Living only two miles away from their daughter, they decided to go and check on her. But Joanne's boss was already a step ahead. She had contacted the local sheriff, and apparently, Joanne had recently confided in the sheriff that she had been having some troubles with her daughter, Tyler. That sounds kind of strange, right? When you first hear that the mom contacted the sheriff about her daughter, I thought that was really odd, but there's more to the reason why Joanne had called the sheriff, and I will get into that a little bit later. Joanne's parents immediately got into their car and raced over to her house. There were already two sheriff's squad cars there and some deputies walking around the perimeter of the home. Norb told the sheriffs that he could get them into the house. He unlocked the door for them, but they ordered him to remain outside while they searched the house. When they came back out, they had to break the news to her parents that she was indeed upstairs, in her bedroom, and she was deceased. And that was the exact words they used, deceased. They didn't say that she was killed or murdered, but as soon as the CSI unit arrived, and there were nearly two dozen investigators milling in and out and all around the home, Joanne's parents quickly surmised that there was foul play involved in Joanne's death. The scene was gruesome. 
very violent, and very bloody. Joanne had been stabbed no less than 20 times, including one wound that nearly decapitated her. What made things even worse for Norb and Judy was the fact that their 14-year-old granddaughter, Tyler, was nowhere to be found. Their feelings immediately turned from shock from learning of their daughter's death to being deeply concerned about their granddaughter. They didn't know where she was or if she had been kidnapped or if she was being held somewhere or if she was injured or even dead. They didn't know. However, it didn't take long for the detectives on the case to come to the conclusion that Tyler was no victim. Not only was there evidence at the scene that pointed to her having something to do with Joanne's murder, but they found out that just a few weeks before her death that Joanne had filed a complaint with authorities about her 14-year-old daughter's relationship with her 19-year-old boyfriend, Stephen Culver. Detectives quickly turned their sights towards the young couple. They wanted to find them. They definitely wanted to talk to them. Tyler and Stephen met at a coffee shop not long after she started ninth grade and he had just started college. Stephen immediately began having a negative influence on Tyler, although she may have been predisposed to being easily influenced, easily taken with the young man, for reasons I will get into a little bit later in the show. According to Tyler's grandparents, she was this 14-year-old that looked up to him, like he was really someone special, and they said that he had complete control over her. They said that to compound the situation, Stephen brought drugs with him, lots of drugs, everything from marijuana to ecstasy to cocaine. They surmised he used these things to maintain control over their granddaughter. For some reason, just a few weeks after the young couple met, Tyler and Stephen convinced Joanne to let Stephen rent a room in their home. She thought the two were just friends. I don't know, it seems kind of naive to me. But again, there are some underlying issues between Joanne and Tyler that I will discuss in a little bit. They told Joanne that Stephen was gay, and she believed it. Joanne mentioned the new living arrangements to some of her friends, and they immediately grew skeptical. And if I was one of her friends, I would be one of those skeptics too. She thought that it would be a win-win-win situation for the three of them. He needed a place to stay. He could help tutor Tyler with her homework. And he could help her cover the mortgage on the house. Nobody was buying it though. None of her friends, none of her family, nobody felt this whole arrangement was on the up and up. But Joanne was going to do what Joanne was going to do. I really don't know if she just kind of talked herself into this because she really wanted to believe that this was an ideal situation for all of them, or if she just wanted to appease her teenage daughter. Whatever the case, she did allow Stephen to move into the home in April of 2009, but not surprisingly, by May, she was becoming suspicious of Stephen and her daughter. 
and what it was exactly the two of them were up to when she was away at work. Finally, one day, when she arrived home early, she was absolutely appalled by what she found when she went upstairs to Stephen's room. She had walked in on them in a very compromising position. They had either just or were about to engage in a sexual encounter. She found Tyler hiding in Stephen's closet, completely naked, crouching down to hide, trying to cover herself up. And Joanne did, just as you would expect any parent to do. She demanded that Stephen leave immediately. Not only that, she called two of her male co-workers to come over and help her throw him out, as she didn't want to have to do it alone. So they came over to Joanne's house and helped move Stephen's things onto the sidewalk. And when they were done with that, they confronted him. Her friend told Stephen to consider himself lucky. If it were him, he'd be in jail right now. And Joanne was feeling the same sentiment. She believed that in having a sexual relationship with her daughter, that Stephen was committing the crime of statutory rape, as he was an adult and Tyler was a minor. She warned him that she would contact the sheriff if he did not stop seeing Tyler immediately. Joanne's co-worker seconded that by telling him directly that if he made any contact with Tyler, whether it be by phone or in person, that he would hurt him. But Stephen wasn't the least bit intimidated by Joanne's friend. Not one bit. And Stephen wasn't about to be deterred by Joanne or any of her friends. He basically thumbed his nose at everyone and continued on with his relationship with Tyler. He would sneak over to Joanne's house during the day while she was at work, as well as late at night while she was asleep. Again, it wouldn't be too long before Joanne found out what was going on between the two of them. And when she did, she made good on her threat to contact authorities about Stephen having a relationship with her underage daughter. Authorities opened their investigation into Stephen Culver. These two, Stephen and Tyler, they were not going to be stopped by Joanne. This is when the couple decided that they were going to do something about this. Afraid that Stephen was going to soon be charged with statutory rape and sent to jail for a very, very long time, the two of them set into motion a plan, one where the couple could be together for eternity and never have to worry about outside forces keeping them apart ever again. Now this is where you would hope that this tale had turned into some kind of epic Shakespearean tragedy, like Romeo and Juliet. I'm thinking these two fancied themselves as such. I like the story of Romeo and Juliet, and many of you are probably familiar with it. Just in case, it's that story of that ongoing feud between two families, the Montagues and the Capulets. Romeo Montague decides to attend a party being held by the Capulets. But when he goes, he hides his identity. And it is at this party that he meets Juliet and instantly falls in love. They exchange their vows of love, and in short order, they exchange their vows of marriage. Having been challenged by an adversary, Romeo ends up killing his opponent in the challenge, and he's subsequently banished. Juliet learns of Romeo's banishment, but 
is promised that she will still be able to see him. And Romeo is advised to visit Juliet secretly and then leave to live somewhere else. After bidding Romeo a hasty farewell, Juliet's father is going to have her marry someone else in three days, but Juliet refuses. However, the marriage is being arranged regardless of her objections. A plan is devised by the friar to help Juliet avoid the marriage. He will give her a drink that will make her appear to be dead, and voila, no marriage. He will send a message to Romeo and tell him the plan, and they can make their way to be together elsewhere. Juliet tells her father that she will marry, and they prepare for the wedding the next day. In her room, Juliet drinks the liquid and she goes into a deep sleep. When she's discovered, everyone is in mourning, and she is taken to the family crypt. Romeo receives the news that Juliet is dead, so he vows to lie dead next to her that same night and acquires some poison from an apothecary. In the meantime, the letter was unable to be delivered to Romeo, so the news never reaches him that Juliet's death was a ruse. The man Juliet was to marry and Romeo encounter one another in Juliet's tomb, and a fight ensues, and Romeo kills him. He then drinks the poison and dies next to Juliet. The friar arrives just in time to find Romeo dead and Juliet waking up. She sees Romeo, takes his dagger, and kills herself. And in the end, the Montagues and the Capulets agree to make peace with one another. I know that's a really, really basic rendition of the story, but you get the idea. When I get into the details of Tyler and Stephen's plans, you're going to wish that they had just done what Romeo and Juliet had done and leave everyone else alone. But even then, they probably wouldn't have gotten that right either. Authorities were closing in on Stephen regarding the alleged sexual relationship Joanne had complained about to the sheriff. In a recorded call police made to him, they asked him point blank, have you ever had sex with her? He very sternly said no. They asked, what was your relationship with her then? Stephen said, she's like a sister to me. I understand she's 14. I understand all this. I'm very, very scared at the moment. Detectives say to him, you've got to be honest. It will look a lot better for you if you just come clean. But in reality, no matter what Stephen would have to say to the detectives, things were only going to get worse. Joanne discovered the diary, Tyler's diary. And according to prosecutors, the writings in that diary could not be more incriminating. In it, Tyler wrote about things that made it very clear that they had indeed been having a sexual relationship, including details of a variety of instances when they were together, explicit details of different encounters, different sexual positions that they had tried. Joanne went straight to the sheriff's office and turned the diary over to them right away. And then she came home and told Tyler exactly what she had done. Tyler became very, very angry. She felt betrayed by her mother. And knowing the contents of her diary, she became afraid that Stephen was going to be in really deep trouble now that her mom had done this 
and that he was going to be looking at a lot of jail time because of it. Now, pausing the story for a moment, this opens up a whole bunch of issues regarding parenting I find to be really troubling. Out-of-control teens, snooping on your kids, trying to discipline reckless behaviors. Now, despite the fact that I'm the mom of a teenage daughter, I have not even come close to having to deal with the kinds of drama that Tyler has brought down on her mom. I can't even begin to tell you what I would do if I had some stuff like this to have to contend with because I have no idea. I would seriously be beside myself. Would you guys snoop in your teenager's room? I really haven't felt like I've had to, you know. There's been times that I've told my daughter that I'm going to sort through her clothes and reorganize her drawers and closet while she was away on a sleepover or something. And she's never banned me from going into her room. We just haven't had these kinds of problems, at least not that I know of. Knock on wood. There are a few more details about Tyler's early childhood that I'm going to get into a little bit later. I keep alluding to it, but I'll get there. But parenting a teen is definitely something I want to talk about more with you guys, maybe on social media. What are we supposed to do with out-of-control teens? Because if this were me, I'd be lost, honestly. So back to the story. Since that incriminating diary was now in the hands of law enforcement, Tyler and Stephen began to think that based on the contents of the diary, Stephen was looking at a minimum of like 20 years in prison. And suddenly, the couple blamed Tyler's mom for causing this problem they were now facing. They came to the conclusion that the only thing that they could do now the only way that they were ever going to be together was to kill Joanne. It really didn't make any sense. She had already turned the diary over. The damage was done. Their secrets were out. Getting rid of Joanne wasn't going to undo that. Maybe they thought it would. I don't know if they figured that or if they just decided they wanted to kill Joanne because they were angry at her for turning Tyler's diary over to police. That would make more sense to me, but then we are talking about two very ignorant, very self-centered, very short-sighted, very entitled teenagers. Nothing they've done up to this point makes any sense, really. Whatever the reasoning, prosecutors believe that Tyler and Stephen together planned this, They intended to carry it out together, both of them in on it, both knowing what was going on, both intent on seeing Joanne dead. According to the investigation, authorities believe that very late at night on Thursday, June 11, 2009, sometime after Joanne had gone to bed, Tyler let Stephen into the home. With him, He brought a knife, and then Joanne was viciously stabbed to death in her bed while she slept, likely not even having the chance to realize what was going on or who it was that was slamming that knife down into her body 
At least I hope she never knew. And in what is kind of a bit of irony is when crime scene investigators later took pictures of the crime scene, when they pulled the drawer open on the nightstand next to Joanne's lifeless body, laying just inside the drawer was a book entitled Parenting Your Out-of-Control Teenager, Seven Steps to Reestablishing Authority and Reclaiming Love by Scott P. Sells. After the murder, investigators say they covered Joanne's body with a blanket, turned the air conditioner down in an attempt to slow the decomposition, turned the lights off, locked up the house, and left. According to witnesses, who were friends of the couple, they were seen the next day around town, hanging out, holding hands, kissing each other, having the time of their lives, maybe in their eyes, living the life they had been dreaming of. This is a very shocking way to behave, right? I mean, killing mom and then going on about your life as a young, happy-go-lucky couple in love, never skipping a beat, as if nothing happened. To most, it would be absolutely insane to be acting like that after committing and witnessing the brutal stabbing death of one's mother, right? But in all honesty, when I was reading this, I wasn't really all that shocked. I don't know if they just shut out Joanne's murder, put it out of their minds, or just tucked it way down deep so they wouldn't have to think about it. Or if they're really that callous and cold that they could commit such a horrendous act as this and go on like all is well. They were getting what they wanted without a moment's thought about what they had done and what would be in store for them once their deed was discovered. All they cared about in the world was being with each other. Absolutely nothing else matters. It's nuts. And it gets even more nuts. Apparently, this couple with their crazy, stupid love had a suicide plan a la Romeo and Juliet, I suppose. You know that romantic yet tragic ideology of being together forever, not in this life, but rather in death? Yeah, this is what was going on in their dumb, dumb teenage brains. Oh, we can't be together here and everyone wants to keep us apart. Let's just kill ourselves and be together forever in the afterlife for all of eternity. I know this is a podcast, but you can imagine how hard my eye roll is right now. If it weren't for the fact that Tyler's poor mom was lying in her bed stabbed to death, the story might actually be funny. It's so ridiculous. And it gets even better. After visiting with their friends and hanging out, they decided to put the suicide part of their plan into action. They headed to San Francisco and rented a motel room. And I don't want to make light of their attempt at taking their lives by any means, but I will say it seems like a plan that a kid would think up. They figured that the way that they were going to end their lives was to eat a concoction of Fruit Loops mixed with chocolate cake and rat poison. I don't know how serious of an attempt at ending their lives this was, and I don't know how much of the rat poison they actually consumed. 
I have no idea if it tasted terrible or they just couldn't go through with it or if they backed out at the last minute, but they didn't die. Either they didn't follow through or it didn't work. I have no idea. In the crime scene photos of the motel room they rented, the bowls with the cake and Fruit Loops were still full. So I'm thinking that they didn't eat hardly any of it. Two days after Joanne's body was discovered, San Francisco officers found the two of them near a local mall changing their clothes behind a dumpster. They were both taken into custody, charged with the murder of Tyler's mom. It was quickly ascertained that Stephen had told some of his friends that it was he who stabbed Joanne, and according to those friends, he showed them the bloody knife in the trunk of his car. A knife, by the way, that was never recovered. Of course, if you were to ask Stephen's mom, she would say that everyone has it all wrong, stating, When I looked at those autopsy photos, I just remember gasping at the horrific nature of them. Stephen isn't capable of that. And his attorney would chime in, explaining that the reason Stephen told his friends that he was the one who killed Joanne was because he wanted to protect Tyler from being labeled a mother killer and that he was planning on killing himself that day in the hotel so he wasn't concerned about the consequences for him. All he wanted was to prevent her from being blamed for the murder. His mom stated, He cared about others before himself to his detriment. He's the kind of guy to jump in front of a bullet or run into a burning home for a friend. Even when he was brought in for interrogations, the first thing he asked about was Tyler and how she was doing and that he was worried that she was going through a lot. When his mom finally had the chance to talk to him, she asked him why would he admit to doing something like this, essentially crippling any chance that he would have at a good defense. He told his mom that he was in a different state of mind. She told him that his own words were probably going to convict him. Stephen's attorney felt as though there was plenty of evidence, particularly in that diary of Tyler's, that would prove that not only was Stephen a nonviolent, non-confrontational person with a clean record and no history of any kind of aggression or temper, but rather it was Tyler who demonstrated a pattern of angry and violent outbursts. She repeatedly wrote in her diary that she wished her mom was dead, that her mom was driving her insane, and not only did she write it over and over again in her diary that she hated her mom, she told anyone who would listen how much she hated her. In one line in her diary, she wrote, If my mother doesn't let me see Stephen, I swear to God, I'll kill her. Now as for Tyler's interrogation, I found it to be kind of interesting, and I wanted to include some excerpts from that. You kind of get a glimpse of what's going on in that little mind of hers. She was Mirandized, and she agreed to talk to detectives. They asked her to tell them about what happened that last Thursday. She said, me in Boston. Now that's Stephen's nickname, and I don't like it, but that's what she keeps calling him throughout her interview with police, so that's what I'm going to say. Me and Boston decided that we didn't want to live there anymore, and we knew we couldn't get away, as in leaving, 
So we decided just to go down to San Francisco to, well, just be together. Just, we, we were going to try to kill ourselves. That didn't work. So we decided that we were just going to drive somewhere, anywhere. It didn't matter. And the car got towed. So we walked. That's it. The detective said, let's go back further. What happened on Thursday? Start with that day. Tyler said, I called him around midnight. He came to the house. I packed some stuff in my bag, mostly just stuff I already had on. He got to my house and we went up to the school that's right next to my house. And we went to the parking lot and got in his car. The detective said, okay, what about your mother? Where was your mother at that time? Tyler said, she was asleep in her room. I heard her, I think, an hour and a half ago, let the dogs outside. I was more worried because I was afraid that the dogs would start barking when we left the house because they do. The detective said, okay, so on Thursday, let me get this straight. You contacted Boston at what time? Tyler said, I called him throughout the day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and again about three more times when I got home. The detective asked, Okay, and where was your mother during all of this day during Thursday? Tyler stated, She was at work. She dropped me off at summer school. I called him when she picks me up. She picks me up and drops me off at home. The detective asked, Okay, what time did she pick you up? Tyler answered, 12.30. That's when my summer school gets out. The detective asked, Okay, so that's 12.30 in the afternoon on Thursday. Tyler answered, yeah. The detective asked, so at 12.30 she takes you home. Does she return back to work? Tyler, yeah. Detective, okay. What time was the next time you saw your mother? Tyler, when she got home around 5 o'clock. Detective, okay. So she got home at 5 and Tyler interrupted and said, no, it was around 6.30. She had to stay at work late. Detective, okay, so at 6.30, about there, she stayed late and you were at home. Anybody else at home at that time? Tyler, no, alone. Detective, okay, and nobody else lives in the house? Tyler, no. Detective, okay, so starting at 6.30, what was your evening like? Tyler, me and my mom, we went to Safeway, and then we went to the gas station by the Purple Place. I was a little upset just because of a fight. We had gotten to a fight when she dropped me off at home and she was trying to make it right. Detective, what was the fight about? Tyler, she wanted me to talk to a detective about something Boston had did, but he didn't. And I didn't want to talk to him. Detective, you didn't want to talk to the detective? Tyler, no, because it wasn't true and I didn't want her pressing it and she kept pressing it. Detective, okay, what happened as a result of that argument? Tyler, we got into a fight and we had a word and it just means, okay, you go to work and I go home and we both go our separate corners. We cool off, we'll come back and we'll talk about it later. So she went off to work and I just kind of hung out at home. I did some chores, sprayed the weeds. Detective, Okay, then that was it? 
Did you pick up this conversation again that evening? Tyler answered, no. The detective asked, okay, was this in reference to the diary? Tyler answered, yeah. Detective, okay, and you refused to speak to Detective Barber, is that correct? Tyler, yes. Detective, okay, and you are saying that whatever was being alleged was incorrect, and you and your mom were arguing about that, or at least had a disagreement about it? Tyler, yeah. Detective, okay, so your mom goes back to work and she comes back at 6.30. You say you went to the Safeway, and then you went to the gas station next to Purple Place. Tyler, yeah, we basically, we went home. I was watching a movie, playing on the computer. She likes to drink her alcohol. She had a couple of beers. She was really tired. She went upstairs and went to bed. I went to quote-unquote bed around 10, 10.30. Detective, what time did she go to bed? Tyler, she went upstairs around 7, actually, or not 7, 7.30. She didn't go straight to sleep, though. I noticed. I went into her room and I checked because she actually allows me to. She promised me that she wouldn't drink any more alcohol except for beer. Walked into her room. I smelled wine. So I was a little pissed off and I went into my room. Detective. Okay, what time was that? Tyler. This was right before I went to bed, so around 10.20. Detective. Okay. Then you checked on your mom. What was she doing? Tyler. She was passed out asleep. Detective. How was she positioned? Tyler. She was rolled over on her side. Detective. On her side? Was she under the covers or on top of the covers? Tyler. It was dark. I really don't remember. I'm going to assume she was under the covers, flopped over to the side away from the edge. Detective. Okay, so that's her normal sleeping position? Tyler. Yeah. Detective. Okay, so was the TV on or was it off? Tyler. It was on. It was off when I left. Detective. It was off when you left? Tyler. Yes. Detective. But was it on when you checked on her? Tyler. Yes. Detective. Okay. What time did you call Boston? Tyler. Let me see. I called him at... Wow. Damn. I called him around 10, telling him that I was, you know, waiting for him. That I called him probably four more times, making sure that my mom was in deep enough sleep so that way I could get out of the house without my dogs going berserk. Detective. Okay, so what time did he arrive at the house? Tyler. Around midnight. Detective. Okay, and did he come to the front door? Tyler. No. He went around to the back gate. He opened up the gate, and we went in the backyard. He waited outside while I got my clothing. My dogs know him because he used to live in my house, so they didn't go crazy. Detective, okay, so you and Boston are at the house together at midnight. Tyler, yeah. Detective, okay, and you gathered your clothes and he waits outside? Tyler, yeah. Detective, and then where do you go from there? Tyler, we hopped the back fence because he parked by the school. Detective, okay by the school, and why did he do that? Tyler, 
because my gate code, my mom can check it. And if she checks it, she could. Because we use a personal code, it tells us who's been in our gate, what time. So if she texts it, then she's going to know. Not like it's really going to matter, seeing as. Detective cuts her off. Right. And then what do you do from there? Tyler. Well, I didn't really have a place to sleep, so we went back to his house. He took a shower, then I took a shower, and we got in his car and we slept. And first we slept at the library parking lot for a couple hours. Detective. The El Dorado Hills Library? Tyler. Yeah. And then we went over to Town Center. Detective. Okay. Did you sleep in the parking lot there at Town Center? Tyler. Not really. Detective. Where did you guys park at Town Center? Tyler. In front of the Holiday Inn. Detective. Okay, you parked in front of the Holiday Inn at Town Center. Did you rent a room at the Holiday Inn? Tyler, no. Detective, did you just hang out, stay awake? Tyler, yeah, we stayed awake. Or we kind of like dozed off for 30 minutes, and then I woke up. And when I'm up, he's up. And we decided to run the errands that we needed to run. Detective, what errands did you need to run? Tyler, we decided that we needed hair dye and we needed food. Detective, okay, where did you get your hair dye? Tyler, Safeway. Detective, okay, you went and purchased these items at Safeway in El Dorado Hills? Tyler, yes. Detective, okay, then you dyed your hair. Where did you dye your hair? Tyler, Back at his dad's house. Detective. Okay. What time was that about? Tyler. Noon, I think. Detective. Okay. Then you had purchased food in addition to that? Why were you guys purchasing these items? What was the purpose of these? You two were going to run away together? Tyler. Yeah, basically. Detective. Okay, so you were going to purchase the food... How much food did you buy? Tyler, not much, just orange juice. Detective, okay, was it just a meal then or was it for a meal for a couple days that you purchased? Tyler, it was just a meal for then. Oh wait, never mind. We went to the Dollar Tree and we bought top ramen cup of noodles and sunglasses. Okay, so what was your plan beyond that? You bought sunglasses, you dyed your hair, you got your food, and you planned on going to San Francisco? What were you going to do when you got to San Francisco? Tyler, rent a hotel room and wait until Monday. Detective, okay, and then what happened? Then you rented a room? We already know that you rented a room. Where did you rent this room? Tyler, Holiday Inn. Detective, Okay, you rented a room at the Holiday Inn, and then what happened? Tyler. We basically tried to make the best of our last few days, waiting until Monday. Monday night, we tried to consume rat poison. Didn't work. Detective. And what do you mean by tried to consume it? It didn't work. What do you mean by that? Tyler. As in, we consumed it, and it didn't kill us. Detective. Okay, how much did you consume? Tyler, I don't know. Detective, 
I mean, did it make you feel bad at all or upset stomach? Tyler, not really. Detective, no? Okay, so this is Monday night. What date was that, the 15th? That would have been the 15th, okay. So this Monday night, the 15th, you're in a hotel room, if I'm right. You're in the hotel room and you're consuming this rat poison to try and kill yourselves. Okay, did you reach out to anybody and tell them that you were going to do this? Tyler, yeah, I called my best friend and he called his best friend and we told them. Detective, okay, who's your best friend? Tyler, Matthew Widman. Detective, okay, so you told him and he called his best friend who was Tyler, Matthew Bogart, I think is his last name. Detective, okay, so you contacted them and you told them, this is what we're going to do. Tyler, yeah, we told them that this is what we're going to do and we just wanted to say bye and that we love you. Detective, okay, and speaking of friends, did you contact anybody, any friends you know, the evening of Thursday? You contacted Boston and you and Boston took off. Did you contact any of your friends from that point until the point you called them on Monday? Tyler, yes. On Friday, we met up with a lot of our friends, just Matthew and my friend Richard, and we all went to the town center and hung out for a couple of hours, then went back to Boston's house. It was me, Boston, and Matt. Detective, okay, went back to his house. Tyler, yeah, and we're just going to stay there, hang out, make, you know, because we didn't. I didn't tell Matt that this was the last time we were going to be able to see him. But we kind of forced him because it's kind of like a trio. It's me, Matt, and Boston. We're a family, and we kind of forced him. We were just like, you're not going anywhere. You're staying and hanging out with us. His dad came home, so we decided to drive Matt home. And we basically just waited out. He lives in, what do you call it? I can't remember the name the boonies of basically El Dorado Hills. And we went through the gate and went up, waited in, there's a road, and then you turn and you go down that road, and down that road is his house. So we stopped at the crossroad where the sign is, and we just hung out for like an hour and a half. And then we gave him a hug and we said goodbye. Then we started driving to San Francisco. Detective, okay, did Boston give him anything? Tyler, give him anything? I don't think so. Why? Detective, I'm just asking, did he give him anything? Any conversations about a last will and testament? Tyler, we sent letters out. Detective, okay. And you sent those letters out to just your friends? Tyler, yeah, and one to my cousin. Detective, okay. And what did those letters consist of? What was in them? Tyler, mostly, it was just, Matt was my best friend, is my best friend, and I just wanted to make sure that he was okay, and I love him like a brother, and my cousin has always been there for me, and I wanted to make sure that he knew it. Detective, okay, let's get down to the point here. Why are you here? Tyler, because I tried to run away. Detective, you're here because you tried to run away? Tyler, 
That's what I'm going to guess. Detective. Okay, well, we know that's not the reason. Tyler, what other reasons? Detective. You've been arrested for murder. Tyler. What? Who did I murder? Detective. Well, let's go back to what you were doing in the times that we just talked about. Make sure that those were the times that you're willing to commit to, okay? Let's go back to Thursday. Tyler, who did I murder? Detective, let's go back to the conversation. Your mother. Tyler, what? At this point in the interrogation, Tyler begins to feign shock and begins crying. My mom's dead? The detective answered, we don't, we don't need to play this. We already know that you know your mother's dead. My partner and I have been doing this for a long time. We've done our homework. We've done all the research. We've talked to literally everybody you know. We know a lot of things. This here is an opportunity for you to give us your side of what's going on. And this is your only opportunity to do that. Because as soon as we're done here, we're going to go talk to Boston and get his version of what happened. Now you can help yourself and you can talk with us or we can get your version from Boston. But I have a feeling that you're just realizing now that it may be in your best interest to tell us the entire truth, not just part truth. Starting with where's your cell phone? Tyler, can you pull it together for just a moment and talk to me about your mother? Tyler is crying and says, go away, it's not true. The detective asks, what's not true? Tyler cries, dead, she can't be dead. The detective replies, she's dead. Tyler cries more, no she's not. Ignoring her cries, the detective says, Tyler, talk to me about your mother. Tell me again about Thursday. Tyler answers, I want an attorney, I want you gone. How dare you? The detective states, you want an attorney and you want me gone? Okay, that we can do, that we can do. Then we, unfortunately, cannot talk to you anymore. Good luck. And with that, you find this kid actually doing the smartest thing in all of this. Something that a whole bunch of suspects fail to do. Ask for an attorney and stop talking to police. Of all the people who get interrogated by police and dig themselves into deeper trouble the more they go along, this girl actually has the sense to ask for an attorney the moment they start accusing her of murder. That's about the only bright thing this girl's ever done, really. I wanted to take a moment and rewind the story a little bit, back to what I had alluded to earlier about Tyler's childhood. It's something that is important to mention because it was a period in Joanne and Tyler's relationship that could have likely been the thing that changed the trajectory of their lives forever. As Tyler's grandparents, Joanne's mother and father would say, when Tyler was born, she was everything to Joanne. Tyler's father was never in the picture. It was just her. They described her as a wonderful mother, affectionate, caring, Joanne's whole world revolved around Tyler. They were very, very close. 
But things changed when Tyler was five. According to Joanne's best friend, they were driving and Joanne lost control one day when she was taking Tyler to daycare. Tyler was screaming in the back seat and Joanne was having trouble concentrating on driving. So she turned around and hit Tyler across the face. Later, daycare workers noticed a red mark on Tyler's face that looked like the shape of a hand, so they reported it to Child Protective Services. Tyler was immediately removed from Joanne's custody and placed into foster care. She was there for about a month until her grandparents were able to temporarily get custody. Tyler stayed with them for about six months, while Joanne completed court-mandated anger management and parenting classes. When Joanne was able to gain back custody of Tyler, things had changed around the house. Joanne became afraid to discipline Tyler anymore, and she was afraid that she would be reported to Child Protective Services again. And as Tyler grew older, she got into this mindset that she could do whatever she wanted because she would threaten Joanne to report her to CPS. If she wanted to go out, she would go out, and her mom wouldn't stop her. Tyler began getting in trouble at school, and she attempted to run away from home several times. I watched a documentary about this case, and they had a slideshow of pictures and home videos of Tyler as she was going through her preteen years. And it was actually quite astonishing to look at all of these videos and photos of this young girl. The anger and the resentment is so overwhelmingly apparent on her face. The only pictures of this child smiling are the ones she snapped with her boyfriend. Other than that, every picture is a portrait of misery. Anyway, in the months leading up to Joanne's murder, she had begun trying to discipline Tyler more. She just couldn't sit by and let her 14-year-old run amok as she had been. This only led to more fights, to the point where the fights were getting physical. Police and Child Protective Services became involved again on a number of occasions. Tyler would accuse her mother of getting drunk and beating her on a regular basis, but she was never taken from the home as the accusations Tyler was making were never substantiated by police or CPS. According to the prosecutor on the case, if Tyler had actually been beaten to the extent that she was claiming, there would have been marks or bruises. There were no witnesses to the supposed abuse and there were always people around, and nobody ever saw any of what Tyler was claiming to have been happening. Less than one month before Joanne was murdered, she and Tyler had a fight regarding her daughter's sexual relationship with Stephen. It was the day that Joanne told her that she had turned her diary over to police. Tyler was livid and began throwing things at her mom. And she did something very bizarre she called 911, pretending to be her mother. In the recorded call, she says, Um, excuse me, um, my daughter, Tyler Witt, has been physically assaulting me, and she's vandalizing my home. The 911 operator asks if she feels safe being on the phone with her, thinking it's Joanne on the phone, and Tyler answers, No, I do not. She would not go back into her room. I tried to push her back into her room, and we started getting into a fight, and I'm bleeding. 
What Tyler is trying to do is get herself taken away to juvenile detention. Joanna is finally able to get to the phone, and she is actually injured, and she tells the 911 operator that it was her daughter on the phone, and you can hear Tyler yelling in the background, shouting, Go ahead, finish the report, send me to jail. Why won't you let me leave? The operator asks Joanne if she's safe, and she says she doesn't know. 911 asks if she was injured, and she says that she is. They tell her that deputies are on the way. When prosecutors would later ask Tyler why she tried to arrange her own arrest, she said that she wanted to be anywhere but home, that she'd rather be in juvenile hall. Joanne had a laceration on her chin that was bleeding and some bruising on her arms. And Tyler was taken to juvenile hall, but Joanne refused to press charges. And Tyler was released and sent back home within a few hours. So then these two came to be sitting in jail. Tyler and Stephen accused of plotting Joanne's murder. But a very important question arose. Who actually did the stabbing? Once they got their attorneys, fingers started pointing at each other. Tyler saying Stephen stabbed her mother. Stephen eventually changing his story and claiming it was Tyler who did the stabbing. According to Stephen's attorney, Stephen was suicidal, not homicidal. And his intentions that day in that Holiday Inn were to kill himself with rat poison as he thought he was about to be arrested for statutory rape and this was going to be his way out. He claims the plan was to pick up Tyler, take off for San Francisco, spend a few days there, and end their lives together, and that there was no discussion ever about killing Tyler's mom. Stephen's attorney points the finger directly at Tyler, claiming that she is the one that stabbed her mother and that Stephen didn't know anything about it until Tyler called him to the house, and it was then he witnessed her in possession of the bloody knife. However, the evidence at the scene points to inconsistencies in the story Stephen was recounting. He claimed that Tyler came to the door with a bloody knife in her hand and that the blood was dripping everywhere. Yet, there was no blood anywhere in the downstairs area where he was saying blood was located. And because the physical evidence and the forensic evidence pointed to the killer being Stephen, prosecutors were looking to Tyler and making a deal for her testimony against Stephen. But there would be one big, huge problem. Tyler is a liar. A big liar. She lied specifically to the detectives who interrogated her when she pretended to not know that her mom was dead. But after she had a chance to sit in juvenile hall for a while, she decided that she was going to turn on Stephen to save herself. She would go on to admit that she helped plan her mother's murder, but Stephen was the one who did the actual stabbing. So prosecutors struck a deal. If she would testify against Stephen as to the truth as to what happened that day her mother was killed, she would get a reduced sentence. Prosecutors ultimately believed Tyler's version of events because they were able to corroborate her testimony with the evidence at the scene, and Tyler also passed two polygraph tests. 
When she took the stand at Stephen's murder trial, she said that when she let him in the house, he came armed with a knife. Even if the jury were to find Tyler's testimony to be questionable, it really didn't matter all that much to prosecutors, as they had a minuscule amount of DNA that was found on Joanne's body and a bit under her fingernails. There wasn't enough at that time to get a full DNA profile, but there was enough to determine that the person who left the DNA was a male, and that could have only been Stephen. Stephen did take the stand to defend himself against the murder charge that had been brought against him. In his testimony, he claimed that his then-girlfriend had collapsed into his arms, holding a bloody knife from the kitchen block, telling him, I did it for us. He stated that she met him in the backyard, knife in hand, with blood dripping from the knife, soaking her pant leg. He said that he was shocked when she told him that she did it. She finally did it, and her mom was gone forever. This directly contradicted the testimony Tyler herself gave the previous week when she stated that he was the one who stabbed her mother to death while she herself was laying collapsed outside her mother's bedroom door. She described the scene as Stephen having emerged from her mother's room, holding a bloody chef's knife he had taken from his restaurant job, with blood on his pant leg and on his face. Stephen also testified that the reason he told his friends that he was the one who stabbed Joanne is because he didn't want it to come back to Tyler, that he had made a promise to protect her. On cross-examination, the prosecutor confronted Stephen with a journal from back when he was in high school where he wrote that he wanted to kill himself, stating, I want to leave or kill someone. She also highlighted an entry where he had expressed a desire to cut up some random person's arm and let them bleed out to the last breath, asking him, Is that what you did to Joanne? Absolutely not, he answered. She shot back, How long did it take for her to bleed out? He answered, I don't know. I wasn't there. When he was confronted with the male DNA swabs that were found under Joanne's nails and in a blood smear on her leg, he claimed that he had gone in her room after she had been stabbed and nudged her leg to see if she was really dead. The prosecutor fired question after question at Stephen about his fascination with knives, including a Japanese sword he kept in his car, along with some anime books depicting violence. You have urges to kill people, don't you? The prosecutor asked. His answer? Absolutely not. I would just as soon die rather than kill someone else. After a four-week trial, the jury convicted Stephen of first-degree murder, and with a crime as brutal as the one that was committed against Joanne, the judge had no choice but to sentence Stephen to the mandatory term of life in prison without parole. Prosecutors had decided early on that they were not going to seek the death penalty. And for a 19-year-old kid, life in prison is going to end up being a very, very long time. And as for Tyler, she was given the deal. She pled guilty to second-degree murder, and she would be sentenced to 15 to life, and it was a deal she accepted. This case is so tragic on so many levels. 
For one, the reasons why all of this happened in the first place. With Tyler and Stephen thinking that he was going to spend upwards of 20 years or more in prison for a statutory rape charge, when in reality, it would have likely been charged as a misdemeanor, and he may have spent a year in county jail, but it was most probable that he wouldn't have spent any time in jail as a first-time offender. And then there's the grandparents, Norb and Judy. As their granddaughter sat stoically at her sentencing, not a smidgen of emotion coming from this girl. Her grandparents sat there, fighting back tears, with probably more than enough heartache and sadness to fill the room. Their granddaughter, charged with killing their daughter. It's beyond comprehension how they could have wrapped their minds around that. I can't even imagine. Tyler, their third grandchild, charged with killing their daughter. They really had nothing to do with Tyler for the first two years that she was locked up in juvenile detention, but eventually decided to visit the teen. However, at that time, only Grandma was willing to go see her granddaughter. Her grandpa wasn't ready. When Judy asked her if she had anything to do with her mother's death, Tyler, with the shocked look on her face, responded, Do you really think I could do something like that? Her grandmother chose to believe her. It took several years and the trials for his daughter's murder to be over and done with before Norb finally relented. He went to go visit his granddaughter, more than three years after Joanne's horrific murder. He would describe the clanking of the doors, probably a sound that's unlike anything else imaginable. Tyler meekly walked in and whispered, Hi, Papa and hugged him for a very long time. At the end of the documentary, Norb said that he hasn't quite been able to forgive Tyler, that deep down he thinks he wants to, but he just hasn't gotten there yet. And that brings this 21st episode of California Dreaming to a close. What do you guys think of Joanne's approach to parenting? And do you think that perhaps that everything that happened between Joanne and Tyler is somehow justified or understandable because of the abuse incident that caused Joanne to temporarily lose custody of Tyler? I mean, there's really no way to justify or condone the decisions to resort to murder. But there is something to be said about the trauma of being yanked from your home for six or seven months. And when it comes to the accusations of Joanne's drinking and continued abuse, I'm not sure there's any substance to those accusations, honestly. In the end, I guess what it all really came down to had nothing to do with Joanne, abuse, child protective services, or the alleged drinking. All that it had to do with was Tyler wanting her way. Tyler wanting to be in a relationship her mom forbade. And she was hell-bent on having things her way. I need to give a big, huge thank you 
to all of the new patrons that pledge support to the show. Alicia, Gwen, Kelly, Beth, and I had the slew of Jennifers. Jennifer N, Jennifer M, and Jen B. If you hadn't had a chance to listen, as a Patreon exclusive this week, I've posted an episode entitled The Tale of Sean Taylor. And for as little as $1, you can have access to all of the bonus content. And as the show grows, I'm looking forward to creating more exclusive content for Patreon without sacrificing the weekly show that comes out on Sundays. I'm also thinking about adding a missing person segment each week. A new listener messaged me about a missing persons case that's kind of local to both of us. And when it comes to missing persons, I don't really think I would have enough content to put together a full-length episode. As it is, a missing person story comes to an end, abruptly, unfinished. I like the journey a true crime story takes us on. I like the justice handed down in the end. And that's probably why I shy away from missing persons. But missing persons podcasts are one of my favorite to listen to. And I figure I could dedicate at least 15 or 20 minutes each week to telling the story of a person gone missing in California. Let me know what you guys think. I'm really thinking about putting one up really soon. I have a case suggested by a listener. And I'd really love to have your input and your feedback about this idea. California Dreaming has proudly found a home at the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Being part of the family of amazing podcasts has been incredible for me in the show. I've told you about all the shows that we've joined forces with. The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, Busted Wide Open, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, and Film Roast. I can't think of a more incredible group to be a part of, and they are truly like a family to me. If any of their shows sounds like something you might be interested in, you can find them all on our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And you can also find the links to their Facebook pages at the top of my discussion page. Join their page, find out more about their shows, and get to know the hosts. They are truly fantastic people. Also, don't forget to check out the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store. As always, I'll make sure to post the link in the show notes and on social media. All the usual places that you find me, the Facebook discussion page, join and like that page, follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And before you go, I have a couple of promos from some new shows from Down Under to play for you. The first one is from Allie and Rob, a new podcast called Horror Never Sleeps. And the second is called Mysteries and Urban Legends by Ben and Alex. Take a listen. Hi, I'm Ali and this is Rob. Howdy. And we're the hosts of Horror Never Sleeps, a new weekly horror movie retrospective podcast. We will be reviewing your favourite scary movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween and Psycho. Also, we'll be covering classic gems like Maniac Cop, The Lost Boys. The Human Centipede. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, no. Oh, we'll see. 
first episode will be released mid-November. You can listen on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Until then, stay scared. Ooh. We won't be doing that. Hi, this is Ben. And this is Alex. Do you like unsolved mysteries? How about urban legends and folklore? If you do, you should tune into our podcast, Mysteries and Urban Legends, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, as we explore unsolved mysteries and the origins and meanings of urban legends. Look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all other major podcatchers. You can also find us on all social media at Mall Podcast. So come on and give us a listen and enjoy. Thank you again so very much for joining me for this 21st episode of California Dreaming. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>